And good evening, such a joy and privilege to be with you uh, tonight and bring the Word of God to you all. If you have been with us the past uh, several Sunday evenings, we have been working through the book of Philemon, but right before we started that book, we were working through a series entitled God's Program for the Church. And if you remember, we looked at the church's opposition, the church's architect, the church's foundation, the church's identity, the church's labor, and tonight we are going to wrap up that series and look at the church's reward. Before we turn to the section of scripture we're going to be in tonight, you can you can uh, be turning to 1 Corinthians 3, but I want to begin with an excerpt that I read this week about a minister named Charles Thomas Studd. Uh, You might know him as C.T. Studd. He lived from 1860 to 1931, a very gifted individual who has become known as one who made great sacrifices in going to the mission field in a very primitive time. He was born into wealth, but after his conversion in his college years at Cambridge and as he embraced his calling as a missionary, he graciously gave away a sizable inheritance that was left to him by his father. He did not embrace a life of luxurious ease that was handed to him. Instead, he forsook everything he had in order to become a faithful and devoted follower of Christ. He would go on to minister in India, Africa, and China. There was one night in particular when he and a ministry colleague were Staying in a very run-down and uncomfortable facility, it was extremely cold. They, they could not get warm enough even to sleep. And his ministry colleague awoke in the middle of the night to find his friend sitting up, wrapped up in a blanket in the corner, reading his Bible by candlelight. And his friend, perplexed by what he saw, asked C.T. Studd, why would you choose this time in the middle of the night when you're literally freezing to read your Bible. And here was his response. I felt something was wrong in my relation to the Lord, and so I'm reading through the entire New Testament to check all the commands to me in case I have unwittingly violated any of them. Now, it's just clear from stories like that about his life that his devotion and submission to the Lord was quite remarkable. At some point in his ministry life, he wrote a poem that has a memorable phrase that might be familiar to you. The the first stanza of the poem goes like this. Two little lines I heard one day, traveling along life's busy way, bringing conviction to my heart and from my mind would not depart. Only one life will soon be passed. Only what's done for Christ will last. Only what's done for Christ will last. That is what we're looking at this evening. Will your ministry transfer to eternity? What can you be thinking about now? What can motivate you now to serve the Lord in a way that your service will transfer into eternity by way of reward? Our passage this evening answers these questions. We're going to be looking at 1 Corinthians 3, eventually camping out in verses 10 through 15. But just as we set up the context and by way of introduction, let's work our way there beginning in chapter 3, verse 1. 
Paul says to the church in Corinth, And I, brethren, could not speak to you as to spiritual men, but as to men of flesh, as to infants in Christ. I gave you milk to drink, not solid food, for you were not yet able to receive it. Indeed, even now you're not yet able, for you are still fleshly. For since there is jealousy and strife among you, are you not fleshly? Are you not walking like mere men? For when one says, I am of Paul, and another, I am of Apollos, are you not mere men? So in these opening verses, he's explaining to the church, even though you may indeed have the Spirit, I'll call you infants in Christ, you very well may be believers, I can't speak to you like that. I can't speak to you as I would speak to those who have the Spirit, because you're guilty of prolonging your infanthood in Christ. You have a spiritual disease, an inability to grow and develop in the truth, and and it is a self-inflicted disease. Jealousy, strife, arrogance, self-promoting mindsets, a sense of superiority over others in the body. This was human wisdom on display, preventing their development in the truth. And Paul says, you're acting just like humans of the flesh, those who don't have the Spirit. That's why you're not growing up. That's why I have to hold your hand through every practical issue in body life because you don't have the Spirit. You're not developing in discernment. You don't know how to apply the truth. So to help them move on and develop into spiritual adults, he explains how he views ministry, how he views the body of Christ. Here's a Spirit-informed perspective of what ministry looks like. First, in verse 5, he explains ministry is about servanthood, not superiority. What, then, is Apollos, and what is Paul? Servants, through whom you believed. You've made us significant. You've raised us up. You've made it about this competition and human greatness, when in reality, we're servants. Insignificant means to a greater end. Notice the middle of verse 5, even as the Lord gave opportunity to each one. We don't even determine our ministry opportunities. They're sovereignly determined. The timing of ministry comes from God. The giftedness comes from God. The opportunities to exercise those gifts all comes from God. So there's no room for competitiveness in the body of Christ, jealousy, envy, resentment toward another's opportunities. To do that is to go against God. And then he talks about how ministry influence is produced by God. Verses 6 through 7. I planted, Apollos watered, but God was causing the growth. So then neither the one who plants nor the one who waters is anything but God who causes the growth. So not only are opportunities determined by God, but any growth, any influence, any success in ministry is produced by God. God could do what Apollos and Paul could never do, what they had zero ability to accomplish, actually produce fruit. When viewed from this perspective, anyone in the church is replaceable other than God. As long as God is working, the church will grow. In verse 8, he explains that servants are equal and united, but distinct in responsibility. Notice what he says. Now, he who plants and he who waters are one. The most gifted, the most influential servant is equal to the least gifted and the seemingly insignificant servant. They are both indeed 
servants. They all share the same low rank, and they're working together on the same team toward the same goal. But notice here, this equality is not uniformity. There are going to be different degrees of labor and ministry and responsibilities, middle of verse 8. But each will receive his own reward according to his own labor, not according to influence, not according to giftedness or greatness, but his own labor. And as we're going to see, that's the idea of faithfulness, including motivations. So this guards the church from grasping for roles and significance that it doesn't have because we're going to be rewarded on account of faithful stewardship of the opportunities and gifts that the Lord has entrusted to each one. And then finally, he reminds them of a very important truth in verse 9. The church belongs to God, not man. For we are God's fellow workers. You are God's field, God's building. Three possessive, gods, 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 a theocentric view of ministry. And in mentioning God's building in verse 9, it provides a segue to the section of Scripture we're going to be in tonight. Because Paul's going to talk about God's building and those who lay the foundation and build upon it. And his burden for the church is to be very careful how you do that. Before we get into our outline, let's look at verse 10. According to the grace of God, which was given to me, like a wise master builder, I laid a foundation and another is building on it. Now notice where Paul's perspective begins here. An awareness, grace has been given to me from God. So he recognizes at the start, this is a stewardship. Ministry is not about me, not invented by me, not manufactured by me. It is by grace I have been given a ministry. What's the response? Like a wise master builder, I laid a foundation. Now, what is true today with regard to the foundation of a building was even more critical and more laborious in the ancient world. Large stones were carefully selected and shaped considering the size, angles, depth, width, and then laying them in peace very strategically. If there was any mistake in that process, whatever would be built on top of that foundation would be in jeopardy. Paul refers to himself as a wise master builder. It's, it's a word in the Greek that sounds like architect. That's where we get our, our word architect from. But this is the idea of a designer and a builder kind of combined into one term. So this is how we would think about an architect and a general contractor if they were the same person. So what's he saying here? I skillfully and carefully laid a foundation, a foundation that wasn't my own, wasn't my own idea, didn't come from my own wisdom or my own doing. What is the foundation? We'll skip ahead to verse 11 because he tells us, For no man can lay a foundation other than the one which is laid, which is Jesus Christ. There's the foundation. So here in verse 10, he's emphasizing his initial apostolic work in Corinth. You can read about it in detail in Acts 18, or you can take Paul's short commentary of his approach if you just look back at 1 Corinthians 2, 1 to 2. Here's the foundation. Here's his perspective as he came into Corinth as a wise master builder. And when I came to you, brethren... I did not come with superiority of speech or of wisdom, proclaiming to you the testimony of God. 
For I determined to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. Now he is drawing a contrast here between himself and the professional orators of that day, the sophists in Corinth. These were professional lecturers who would travel city to city, taking their show on the road, gaining influence, making money, creating a following, and it was all based on self-promotion. Look at how amazing I can communicate truth. Look at my intellect. Look at my persuasive abilities. Look at my rhetoric. It was entertainment. It was a business. Those who had this gifting were viewed as superior to others on account of their intellect and their giftedness in communication. So notice what he says in verse 1 there. I did not come like that. I didn't come with an agenda to stand out and impress everyone with my oratory skills and appear wise and more intellectual than others. That's such a remarkable statement because Paul, what he did here is the exact opposite of what the church does today. The church asks the culture today, what will make us more attractive and appealing to you, the world? What will make Jesus and the gospel have more credibility in your eyes? How can we make the truth a little less foolish for you? How can we make the truth make more sense to you if you're unchurched, if you're unconverted? And then based on what's happening in the world, the church is constantly compromising and shifting and changing its philosophy of ministry. Here's what Paul recognized. I'm messing with the foundation if I do that. Paul knew something that a lot of ministries today don't consider. You can have an orthodox statement of faith, but a heretical philosophy of ministry. So what's he saying here in verse 1? When I came to Corinth... I wanted to make sure you didn't think I was coming like a sophist, like a professional lecturer. I wanted there to be a distinction between me and them. And the distinction was not that I wanted to be greater than them, more gifted. No, I wanted to be less. I wanted to be viewed as inferior in the eyes of the culture. So what's he, look at what he's saying here. He reminds them, I knew what would give the gospel more credibility in your town. I knew how to get a larger audience. I knew what would give the gospel the best chance at a hearing, and I made a point of not doing it. I didn't come promoting my own gifts or intellect. I didn't come using speech that would elevate me. I didn't come with rhetorical gimmicks for persuasion because I was about one thing and one thing only, being a wise master builder, and that's what he says in verse 2. For I determined to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. You want to know my method, Corinthians? You want to know the reason for my approach? Right here. My message is the method. Truth. Truth is my method. My philosophy of ministry, my preaching, matched the message I was communicating. So I came as weak and foolish in the act of preaching to communicate a message that appears weak and foolish to the unconverted man. That is how a wise foundation was laid in Corinth. It wasn't built on human wisdom. It was built on the actual foundation, Christ Jesus. So back in chapter 3, verse 10, when he talks about laying the foundation, he's talking about the truth about Christ Jesus that was revealed through the apostles and prophets that he faithfully proclaimed. 
But now notice next in verse 10. And another is building upon it. He's speaking to the church in Corinth. And certainly the leadership, first and foremost, but by extension, the entire church. And I love his perspective here. He's just recognizing ministry's not mine. I can't control it. This isn't Paul's church, even though I'm the apostle that the Lord used to plant this church in Corinth. The church isn't dependent on me and my gifts. In fact, think about it. Paul had to hand over many different ministries to others who would be building on the foundation he laid. But this handing over does not come with a sober warning. Notice the end of verse 10. But each man must be careful how he builds on it. There's the point for tonight. This is the point of the passage. Each one must direct his attention carefully to how he builds. Each one must direct his mind fully to weigh carefully to be constantly assessing how he is building on the foundation. Those who build upon the apostolic foundation of Christ must ensure that their work fits with the foundation. All right, so by way of outline in verses 11 through 15, we're going to look at four reasons to pay close attention to how you do ministry. Four reasons to pay close attention to how you do ministry. Now, granted, as I mentioned, this section of Scripture is probably carrying a more direct focus to the leadership of the church, those who build on the foundation of the apostles by teaching and leading, but it's certainly not excluding everyone. So your ministry could be that of an elder. It could be that of a deacon. It could be that of a teacher, a discipler, a singer, a coordinator, an administrator, a team member, a person who just in general meets needs in the body of Christ. Four reasons to pay close attention to how you do ministry. The first one is in verse 11. The essence of ministry is determined by God. The essence of ministry is determined by God. We already spent some time on this, so this one will go really quickly. Verse 11. For no man can lay a foundation other than the one which is laid, which is Jesus Christ. Why should you pay close attention and always be assessing your ministry? Because it must be consistent with the one and only foundation. You can't change or modify the foundation. You can't invent another foundation. You can't ignore the foundation. It doesn't matter if something else works to reach people. It's not one way is better, the other way just isn't as good. No, it's a matter of impossibility. No man is able, he can't lay a foundation other than the one which is laid. Another way we could say it, God builds his church and he only ever uses one template for the foundation. Practically speaking, the foundation is doctrine and demeanor consistent with Christ Jesus. Doctrine and ministry consistent with Jesus Christ. Why do I make a point of that? Because we might be tempted to limit the foundation to just orthodoxy, doctrine alone. But that was not the issue in Corinth. They had the gospel right. They would be the church today who has that really good orthodox statement of faith, but then denies that faith, that statement of faith, and how they do ministry. Or as I've heard it put, they deny the gospel without denying a single doctrine. 
This one foundation determines whether or not it's a church. And this foundation must control the materials that are used as it is built upon. And the Corinthians had become careless in their building. Their labor, their materials were not matching the foundation. They were in jeopardy of not building according to God's design. So Paul is reminding them ministry is not up for redefinition. Don't mess with the foundation or anything that threatens that foundation. Ministry is determined by God. Now, the second reason to pay close attention to how you do ministry. The quality of ministry is examined by God. The quality of ministry is examined by God. Verses 12 to 13, beginning in verse 12. Now, if any man builds on the foundation with gold, silver, precious stones, wood, hay, straw. Let's stop right there. Notice something important. The foundation is correct. If any man builds on the foundation, which one? The one in verse 11. So he's not talking about someone who goes in and destroys the foundation and replaces it with something else. He's not talking about the unbeliever here, at least not yet. He goes on to talk about that person in verse 17. You can glance down there. If any man destroys the temple of God, God will destroy him for the temple of God is holy and that is what you are. He's not talking about smoking cigarettes and destroying your human body there. That's talking about destroying the church. Think about a construction scenario today. A builder who uses cheap, shoddy materials, that's one thing. He's cheap, he's careless, he's lazy, he cuts corners, doesn't care about the product, doesn't care about people. But he's different than a builder who comes along and tears down the building with people inside and destroys the work and wipes out the foundation. That is something much more severe. That's what verse 17 is talking about. But that's not the case here in verse 12. This is building on the correct foundation. And that's important because we have to recognize this is talking about believers. All the way through this section, through verse 15. Salvation is secured. They have the right foundation. The issue is, how do you serve? How do you minister? With what materials do you use to build on that foundation? Notice back in verse 12, there are two groups of materials highlighted here. The first three are clearly in a different class than the last three. The distinguishing factors, first would be the value, and secondly would be whether or not they withstand fire. The first three are more valuable and do withstand fire. They are refined. The second three are less valuable and don't withstand fire. So these are metaphors. Gold, silver, precious stones, that's the careful faithful builder who labors and builds with what is compatible with the foundation of Christ Jesus. The second set of materials, wood, hay, straw, that represents careless, poor building, reckless building. Now again, this second set of materials, it's not talking about heresy. It's not talking about heretical doctrines that destroy the foundation of Christ because again, these are believers as 15, verse 15 indicates. This is speaking more of ministry attitudes, ministry demeanor that is inconsistent with Christ Jesus, adding something to the truth. Not so much teaching something heretical, just adding human doctrines to the truth. That's a popular one in our day. A church adding human wisdom, adding psychology 
through its counseling. That doesn't damn people. It just damages their spiritual life. Another example, the purpose of the church. Churches that are confused about the purpose of the church, they get all caught up in cultural issues like social justice. They might be trusting in Christ alone for salvation. The foundation may be in place, but they've added human doctrines. They've added worldly doctrines to the foundation of the cross. Or what about those that don't have any doctrinal deficiencies, but they just serve with the motive of self-promotion? And their ministry is all about them and wanting the approval of others. Any of these are examples of the wood, hay, and straw. Doing ministry, serving in the church, belonging into the church, but carrying attitudes and behaviors that they don't destroy the foundation, but they're just not consistent with it. They don't match it. As one author said, whatever lifts up Christ in his true greatness is gold and silver and precious stone. And whatever detracts from the fullness of his truth, detracts from divine wisdom, detracts from his glory, is wood, hay, and straw. And while they very well may be saved in the last day, any of those building materials that were more in keeping with human wisdom than God's, those are going to be examined and exposed for what they are. Notice what Paul says in verse 13. Each man's work will become evident for the day will show it because it is to be revealed with fire and the fire itself will test the quality of each man's work. Notice this examination of ministry will be individual and universal. That is to say, no one in the church is exempt from this scrutiny and each one will face it as an individual. And it's interesting, he uses three different verbs to refer to the same reality. Each man's work will become evident, for the day will show it because it is to be revealed. What's he trying to emphasize here? The quality of our ministry will be scrutinized and exposed. And the reason why he's repeating it is because we think we can keep it hidden. We think it's not going to show up in the last day. What we think that we're concealing and we're never going to have to give an account for, what we think we're strategically hiding because we fooled men, the practices and motives that we would love to remain covered and hidden and never brought back up, God is going to take a divine spotlight and shine it on those things and bring piercing clarity on that day. Motives for ministry. Self-preservation, self-promotion, self-will, all these things are going to be examined and revealed for what they are. And you say, well, when will this happen? What is this day that Paul's referring to? Well, this is the believer's judgment, the judgment seat of Christ. Again, it's clear we're talking about believers here and that this doesn't have to do with salvation. That's already been determined. We're going to see that in verse 15. This is not determining one's eternal destiny. This is determining reward or lack thereof. According to 1 Thessalonians 4, at the rapture, every deceased believer will rise first. All who are alive at that time will be caught up together with them and Christ in the heavens. And Christ will go on to reward his bride at that time and they will receive their glorified bodies. 
One other passage that talks about this judgment, you can look over at 2 Corinthians 5, verse 9. Not a popular passage in our day in certain sanctification models because we don't like the thought that we can be more pleasing to the Lord in how we live. But look at what Paul says. Therefore, we also have as our ambition, whether at home or absent, to be pleasing to Him. Why, Paul? Give us the motivation. For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ so that each one may be recompensed for his deeds in the body according to what he has done, whether good or bad. He's referring to the same reality back in our passage. The good is the reward. The bad is everything that gets burned up. Go back to 1 Corinthians three thirteen. Notice the purpose of this examination. Using the metaphor, the purpose of the fire, it is to reveal, to expose. This is not a fire of destruction. It is not a fire of purification. What's even more obvious is there's absolutely nothing here about being punished for your sins or atoning for your sin. Purgatory doesn't exist, and you certainly couldn't get it from this passage. No, what's the purpose of the fire? To reveal, to examine, to test. The issue here is examining the quality of one's ministry labors. How did you build? So we are to be serving now, ministering now, knowing that examination is coming in the future. It's going to be examined and exposed by God. That brings us to a third reason to pay careful attention to how we do ministry. The success of ministry is rewarded by God. The success of ministry is rewarded by God. Verse 14, If any man's work which, has, which he has built on it remains, he will receive a reward. What determines the reward? Whether or not the work upon the foundation survives the exposing fire of divine scrutiny. Does it pass the test of quality? Metaphorically, we, we could say this. Is it revealed to be gold, silver, precious stones? So that part is clear. What is not clear is the part that you're probably most curious about right now, and that is, what's the reward? What's the reward? Well, the text affirms the certainty of a reward. That part is clear. It doesn't get as specific as we might like as to the nature of the reward. When it comes to our rewards, the believer's rewards, we are we are left with piecing together several passages and some deductions and implications we're making from those passages. First of all, I think we get a pretty good indicator back in chapter or moving ahead in chapter 4 verse 5. Look at this. Paul referring to this same reality and it's really the same context. Look at what he says. Therefore, do not go on passing judgment before the time, but wait until the Lord comes, who will both bring to light the things hidden in the darkness and disclose the motives of men's hearts. And then each man's praise will come to him from God. A lot of similarities with our passage in chapter 3. The Lord is testing and revealing the quality of each man's work. And then it's followed by a reward, praise from God. But in this passage, he gets a little more specific 
with how our ministry is going to be examined. Notice the motives of men's hearts, the, the purposes and plans of the heart. This tells us that what might look like gold, silver, precious stones might in reality be wood, hay, and straw because he's not judging on external appearance, but internal purposes. Notice that last phrase again in verse 5, then each man's praise will come to him from God. It sounds so similar to what Jesus said in the Gospels. Well done, good and faithful servant. Matthew twenty-five, twenty-three. That is a great reward for a Christian. Any Christian who loves Christ, it is harder to imagine a better reward than that, the pleasure of God. God himself affirming your life of ministry and devotion. So I think we could say the reward involves at least that aspect. God's affirmation of your life of pure and devoted service unto him. But what about some other passages that speak of reward? Well, look at 1 Thessalonians 2, 19 to 20. Here we see that reward is connected to the joy of seeing what spiritual fruit the Lord produced through your efforts. 1 Thessalonians 2, 19 to 20. For who is our hope or joy or crown of exaltation? Is it not even you? And notice this, in the presence of our Lord Jesus at his coming. For you are our glory and joy. The Thessalonians, very healthy body of believers. What a delight and reward for the believer to see what fruit the Lord produced through their faithful labor. The Lord revealing to you in that day all of the ways that you are aware and unaware of how he used your faith-filled efforts. Let's also turn over to Matthew twenty-five, twenty-three, and look at that passage we just talked about with Jesus. It's a familiar phrase in the Gospels, but we'll just use this one as our example. Matthew twenty-five, twenty-three. his master said to him, Well done, good and faithful slave. Now notice this, you were faithful with a few things. I will put you in charge of many things. Enter into the joy of your master. So we see the affirmation, but we also see an additional aspect of reward here being entrusted with more authority, more responsibility, more service. And you say, more work in heaven? More service, more authority, more responsibility? Yeah, absolutely. Labor and work and service are not the result of the curse. Those things existed before the fall of Genesis 3, and it'll exist after the curse is gone. Work and service and labor only have a negative connotation to us because we work against the curse and with the presence of sin. Both those things will be eliminated. So our service will always be joyful and fulfilling and rewarding as it was originally designed. Also notice in this passage, there's a connection between reward and joy. Enter into the joy of your master. All right, so we're just taking these passages and we're piecing together a theology of reward. We could say the affirmation of God, the privilege of more oversight, more responsibility, greater joy, 
That could be the reward. Now to clarify, everyone's going to be equally Christ-like and perfected in sinlessness. There will be no distinctions of superiority or inferiority, no sin, no envy, no jealousy, no discontentment, no lack of fulfillment, no lack of satisfaction, but there will be differences. There will be different levels of opportunities, levels of service, and it would appear even greater degrees of joy, greater capacity for joy. Jonathan Edwards has that analogy where everyone's cup of joy in heaven will be overflowing, but some cups are larger than others. It might be a helpful way to think about it. Now, even with these things in mind, we, we have to recognize it just isn't the burden of the scriptures to give us very many specific details about what reward awaits us in heaven. What's clear is we will be rewarded and it'll be determined by the devotedness and faithfulness of our service here on earth. So back to 1 Corinthians 3, I, I labeled this point, success in ministry is rewarded by God, and that's true as long as we're defining success as faithfulness, Christ-likeness in ministry. Success is not how many people were reached, how wide was my influence, Granted, faithfulness might be connected to those things, but that's not how it's measured. So I thought about what's an example in Scripture of successfully building on the right foundation? Putting aside Paul, he's the obvious example, but maybe an example of a ministry practice or a motive, an attitude that won't burn up. It's going to survive and be rewarded. Look over at John three, twenty-six. John 3.26 And they came to John and said to him, these are his disciples, Rabbi, he who was with you beyond the Jordan to whom you have testified, behold, he is baptizing and all are coming to him. We've got the potential for ministry conflict here. Ministry jealousy. Look, our influence is being threatened. Our numbers are dwindling. People are now going to him and not us. I love John's response. Verse 27. John answered and said, A man can receive nothing unless it has been given him from heaven. What's he talking about there? Same thing that Paul talked about in 1 Corinthians 3. Ministry, opportunities, and influence. That comes from heaven, not man. John shepherds his disciples in his own heart by declaring God's in charge of influence. Ministry opportunities come from heaven. He can't receive one thing unless it's been granted him from heaven. Ministry is not about us and our opportunities or our influence. It's about Christ. That's what he goes on to say. You yourselves are my witnesses that I said, I am not the Christ, but I've been sent ahead of him. He who has the bride is the bridegroom, but the friend of the bridegroom who stands and hears him rejoices greatly because of the bridegroom's voice. So this joy of mine has been made full. He must increase, but I must decrease. What is success in ministry? What type of ministry will be rewarded? A ministry that it's about promoting Christ, not self. Back to 1 Corinthians 3. Success in ministry will be rewarded by God. 
But when we squander it, when we are unbelieving in our ministry, when ministry is about us and we compromise or we neglect, verse 15 is the reality. And that brings us to the fourth reason to pay close attention to how we serve. The carnality of ministry is judged by God. So the success of ministry is rewarded by God. The carnality of ministry is judged by God. Verse 15, if any man's work is burned up, he will suffer loss, but he himself will be saved, yet so as through fire. Suffer loss, that is a word that means forfeit. So he forfeits something that could and should have been his, like a builder who should get a paycheck at the end of his services. Instead, he gets no pay and he incurs penalties for his subpar work. Those who minister with poor materials don't get what could and should have been theirs. They forfeit their reward. Paul is quick to clarify, I'm not talking about salvation. I'm not even talking about the individual person here. It's the work that gets burned up and disqualifies them from their reward. So what are they suffering the loss of? Whatever the person in verse 14 gained, they suffer the loss of. The loss of God's affirmation, the loss of not being entrusted with more oversight and responsibility, the loss of a greater capacity for joy, the shame of squandered opportunities and influence, the loss of knowing that his whole ministry, while successfully fooling others, didn't fool God, no lasting spiritual fruit, none of it transferred into eternity. The loss of recognizing my ministry proved to be human. That's it. Just merely human. Nothing supernatural about it. That's why I labeled this the carnality of ministry. Anything done in the flesh, motivated by the flesh, resembling the flesh, gets burned up. Won't transfer. Remember what Jesus said over in Matthew 6, whether it was praying or giving or fasting. He said, if, you, if you're doing these things with an agenda of self-promotion, wanting others to notice you and think highly of you and, and regard you as righteous, he repeats the same phrase three different times. Truly I say to you, you've received your reward. You live for man's praise. You live to be significant in the eyes of men. Your ministry is all about man's approval, man's recognition. You got it. You got it. That's your reward. It's a great irony in the church today. If you do ministry in a way that will receive God's praise, you get criticized by the church. If you do ministry in a way where you would lose your eternal reward, you get praised by man and accepted in the world. So we have to choose whose approval do we want? What reward do we want? I think verse 15 is a helpful way to understand a lot of ministries today, like Corinth, who have so many things wrong but they have the gospel right. They appear to have the foundation in place. They do preach the gospel. There are some genuine converts there. But basically, everything else about the ministry is human and worldly. The preaching is incredibly shallow. It's full of human opinions and human wisdom. There's no discernment 
apart from basic gospel foundation ideas and the Trinity. They get swept up in every cultural issue as it comes to pass. They have the appearance of being alive and having all of this influence. Their ministries are often big. They change their identity every few years to try to keep up with the world and contextualize to stay fresh and relevant. But in the last day, it's going to be shown you've built nothing. You built absolutely nothing. You started with a foundation. The fire burned through all your labors and you end with just the foundation. You never built anything on it. I don't know of a text I could point to that would prove the point. The ends do not justify the means more than this text. That is the lie at the center of the pragmatic church movement. As long as we have an orthodox statement of faith, as long as we get the gospel right, we can reach people however we want. As long as we reach people. It doesn't really matter how we do it. Paul says it does matter. It does matter. It matters how you build. We looked at John the Baptist for an example of what a successful ministry attitude looks like. Let's look at an example of verse 15. What type of ministry attitude or motivation won't be rewarded? What's going to burn up in the last day? Look at Philippians 1.12. <clears throat> Philippians 1.12. Now, I want you to know, brethren, that my circumstances have turned out for the greater progress of the gospel so that my imprisonment in the cause of Christ has become well known throughout the whole Praetorian Guard and to everyone else, and that most of the brethren trusting in the Lord because of my imprisonment have far more courage to speak the word of God without fear. So there they are. They are ministering. They're preaching the word of God. They're doing ministry, right foundation. Some, to be sure, are preaching Christ. Foundation is right. They have the gospel right. They have the message right. Proclaiming, preaching Christ. But notice, some are preaching Christ even from envy and strife. But some also from goodwill. The latter do it out of love, knowing that I am appointed for the defense of the gospel. The former proclaim Christ out of selfish ambition rather than from pure motives, thinking to cause me distress in my imprisonment. That is the type of ministry that will burn up on the last day. Because notice, it, it, it's got the message and method, that's orthodox, but the motive was heretical. Let's return to 1 Corinthians 3.15 and deal with that final phrase there. Yet so as through fire. What, what's he talking about here? Well, the idea is they will go through the utmost scrutiny, go through this inspection process, and their man-made building of ministry and labors will be burned down. As the building is burning down, they'll be pulled out of the rubble heap, as one commentator put it. They're saved. They don't burn down in the building. But it was a very narrow escape. And they experienced both the terror and the shame of having to be snatched from the very own structure they were so impressed with their entire life. Started with the foundation, 
labored their entire Christian lives supposedly on that foundation, but in the end, only the foundation was left. Didn't accomplish anything of eternal value. It was all of the flesh and everything burned up. It was just human of the world. We can see here on display the mercy of God that such a foolish and proud builder could still be saved, stripped of all the significance that he thought he had among men, but still saved. Also a reminder that we should not automatically assume that anything we're doing in the Lord's name, we are automatically doing the right way or with the right motives. Because we're not going to be judged by how sincere our efforts were. See, we could sincerely believe that hay and straw, well, those are the right materials. Those are going to last. We're not going to be judged by how hard we worked. There are many who work tirelessly, as hard as they could possibly work, but it doesn't matter how hard you work if you're working with wood, hay, and straw. The Lord's going to measure our ministry with fidelity to what he has said. As Dr. Zimmick puts it, doing God's business God's way with righteous motives. Only one life will soon be passed. Only what's done for Christ will last. Will your ministry transfer to eternity? We've seen four reasons to pay careful attention to how we do ministry. The essence of ministry is determined by God. The quality of ministry is examined by God. The success of ministry is rewarded by God. The carnality of ministry is judged by God. Let's close in prayer. Lord, we are so thankful that you have made ministry so clear in your word. We're so thankful that you graciously give us warning and exhortations to ensure that we build wisely on the one foundation in our ministry labors. When we are tempted to add in human wisdom or tempted to to live with a destructive idolatry in our hearts, envying others, jealous of others, insecure, remind us of these motivations to serve faithfully and purely, that our ministry would be that which transfers to eternity and can hold up under divine scrutiny. And Lord, we ask that you'd reveal to us the motives of our hearts. Help us to see areas that we are blind to, that we might confess and repent and serve you in a way that is pleasing to you. In Christ's name we ask. Amen.